Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast podcast. This is Todd. Thanks for joining us this week. Uh, we've got a great podcast coming down on Eastern and Western bird hunting with Catskill guide Bill Swiak. And uh, we're going to be jumping into that conversation. And I think it's going to be really fun. Uh, before we do, uh, Mark Norquist is here with me. Mark, how are you? I'm doing well, Todd. So, what's happening in Minnesota today? Well, you know, we're getting ready for turkey season is uh, is one of the things that uh, that we're excited about. And, um, you know, it's still a few weeks out, but uh, people are, are talking a lot about it. We're going to be launching a new course or a, a, a revamp course for turkey hunting and hunting camp live in a few weeks. And then actually uh, a few weeks after that, uh, early May, we're going to do a, uh, a mentored turkey hunt through partnership with the SEI Foundation. Uh, they reached out to us, wanted to do something. So we're pretty excited about that, getting a bunch of new hunters and, and mentors out uh, uh, on, their, on their first hunt. That is exciting. So when does turkey season start in Minnesota? Turkey season starts Minnesota in the middle of April and, uh, and it goes through the end of May. We've got, uh, what's been nice over the last two years now is, is we've gone to an over the counter scenario. So for people who aren't familiar with, you know, how the licensing works, it used to be a lottery system, uh, and you had a, a chance to get a, a turkey hunting license. Now it's over the counter for the most part, other than three specific WMAs that, uh, that require a lottery draw, which I was lucky enough to, to get this year. Uh, but, uh, otherwise you could just go into your local licensing agent or go online to, to, uh, to the DNR and, and get your license and, and there's not a limit to them. And so this is a great, I think it's a great activity for new hunters. It's so engaging. It's generally a nice time of year. You get out before maybe the bugs are, are too thick, which starts to happen maybe later in the season. And, uh, and I think it's, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, that is all great. And, uh, so in New York here, turkey season starts May 1st. It always sneaks up on me because here it is <laughs> mid-March now. It's still snowy and cold. Yesterday it was windy. It was like below zero with the wind chill. Six weeks from now, you know, the turkey woods will be going and there's going to be gobbling and people are going to be in the woods. And it's a great time of year. After coming through winter, it's so much fun being in the woods in May. Um, so it is a great time and, uh, you know, we're going to be talking a lot more about turkey hunting here in the next few weeks on the platforms that we have. So this week, uh, I'm going to be talking with my friend, Bill Swiak, uh, from the cat skills on this podcast. And, uh, this is kind of fun, Mark, because what happened is, uh, when I caught up with Bill in December, he was on his way home from Montana back to New York in his truck talking on like the Bluetooth, like as we we're having this conversation. So it's for people that do road trips for hunting, it's like being in the truck with a, with a bird guide. It's a fun conversation. Bill is really cool. He grew up on Long Island. He lives in the Catskills in uh, North of New York city on the Hudson river. And he makes, I don't know, five or six trips out to Montana every year too. He spends a lot of time out there. So we're talking about, like all his story and his background, he's an Orvis Sandinona guide. Um, he's a fishing guide, 
but also like his experiences with hunting uh, mountain grouse out in Montana, hunting rough grouse and woodcock in the Catskills and everything in between. So it's a really cool perspective. He sounds like a like a great uh, a great character, and I, I can't wait to to hear this conversation. Yeah, so um, I appreciate everybody listening to it, and you know, uh, let let us know what you think. Um, hopefully, you'll like it, and uh, you know, keep in touch and follow Bill. You know, he's on all the social media channels. I think it's W Swiak, S W I A C. And uh, he's just a wealth of information. And he's one of these generalists, too, that like he's good at bird hunting and he's good at trout fishing. But he also has an incredible amount of outdoor skills uh, that like just continuously impress me about just everything from like from fishing for, you know, straight bass to like crabbing to spearing suckers. I mean, you name it, he's been around it. So thanks for listening and let us know what you think. And if you haven't checked out, Mark's episode with Tony Jones over on Modern Carnivore, episode 23, The Reverend Hunter. Give that a listen. And uh, as always, thanks for checking it out. Tell us a little bit about how you got started. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, about both Eastern and Western bird hunting and your dogs and everything. How did you get started? What's your background? How did you actually get started with guiding anyway? Well, honestly, it was... um the post housing crunch, uh, that left me unemployed. Um, I was deeply, uh, embedded in high end furniture and cabinetry, uh, much of it going to New York city. And that whole industry just kind of stopped. Everyone who was making top dollar was laid off. So, I ended up doing a lot of bird hunting, uh, a whole lot of bird hunting. And uh, I said, geez, you know, I, why don't I do this? Why don't I get my guide's license? And uh, that same year, I ended up getting my guide's license and started taking people out, you know. Um, that was doing it for myself, for my own outfitter. Uh, and that was great. It was a slow start and it took a number of years to gain the clientele, but you know, good dogs, good covers, uh, producing good results. Uh, I'm not talking about a bag limit of birds every day, but, but seeing the numbers of birds, people were like, Oh wow, this is, this is better than what, all the old guys said it's going to be like, because all the old timers said, well, this is how it once was. And it's not like that anymore. And, uh, you know, and you can point your finger at habitat, I think, but, uh, but these people would come out and yeah, we'd move double digit grouse and folks started calling me up, uh, up to a point where, uh, you know, what happens at the end of the season when nobody really wants to be out well, that's where Orvis came into play. You know, my dogs don't know the difference that those were pen-raised birds or wild birds, but they get to keep working and I get to keep working. So it's great. Mm-hmm. Yep. And for those that don't know you, I mean, I, I've known you for a while now through local conservation work, and I've really come to admire your general, like you, you have a, a ton of outdoor skills about a lot of different things beyond bird hunting about fishing and a lot of local knowledge and just uh 
you know, you, you really are somebody that's a, what I consider uh, an expert in the outdoors. And so did you, did you grow up in a hunting family, Bill? Did you like that bird hunting passion that you brought to guiding when things changed with the housing market? Is that just something you always did? Or did you find that at some point in your life later on? Well, that's an interesting question because no, there, we did not have a hunting family at all. Um, I like to say that I was born on wrong Island, uh, or long Island as we know it. Um, and no, absolutely not. I'm, I'm a first generation American, uh, from Polish immigrants, uh, post world war two immigrants. Uh, although my father was deeply believing in the second amendment, considering the environment he came from, uh, we didn't hunt, you know, other than a nuisance raccoon on the property or something like that. There was no hunting, not for food or sport. That's for sure. Um, I came to it after looking at a, a one of those uh, turn-of-the-century paintings of a bunch of hunters, and some, I believe they were setters of some sort, and I said, wow, I'd really like to try that. And I was right around when I was 20, 21 years old. I mean, kind of a leap, considering I had just finished running around following the Grateful Dead, and now all of a sudden I'm out here hunting, so kind of contradictory in some people's minds but not necessarily not mine it makes me like you even more so (laughs) (laughs) So, that's great news like i I love that story and i am glad you shared it because i didn't know that about you so you just at 20 years old you're just like hey i want to i want to try this and you were inspired by something you saw and you just went out and did it. Uh, that was cool. Did you yeah. do it by your, did you did you just start like hunting by yourself, or did you have a group of people that you knew that like? That no, helped? you know all. No, all of my outdoor skills. So let me back up just a little. So how did we get to the cat skills? I, yeah. If I'm from Long Island, well, my father passed away when I was four years old, and our family, that is my grandmother, lived on a farm in Ulster County, and the notion was single mom, maybe grandma can help take care of the kids here and there, blah, blah, blah. So that's how we got up to the cat skills. And it's actually my grandma that passed on a lot of the cooking tradition to me because in Poland, they were from a large estate, and she had been the person in charge of the hunting season there. And so basically there, hunting season is a month long, chronic visitors in and out, a stew pot that never gets turned off for a month. And she was the one that gave me the insight into all of these wild game meats. And I always liked it. I just didn't know that I could pull the trigger and do it myself. You know, that wasn't part of something she'd given me. That was something I decided I wanted. And as that went on, there was no one grouse hunting, so to speak, except for a bunch of old codgers with a bunch of expensive dogs. And, and I scratched my head and I said, well, maybe, you know, I've been kicking brush and not being successful. Maybe I should go get a dog. So there I go. I go and I, I find my first Brittany Spaniel and, and that was a rescue dog took two years to, to get him to not be gun-shy. The dog was gun-shy. It, it was a crazy challenge. Don't know why I took it on, but 
something in my head said, yeah, do this. This is good. This feels good. This feels right. And no, you know, it was me getting friends who were curious about grouse hunting, woodcock hunting. That was me getting them in the field. I didn't learn from them. We learned together as they came with me and I experimented, how do you treat a client via using my friends as guinea pigs, so to speak. That is such a cool story on so many levels. It like it speaks to like the values that I have around hunting. So it's it was your grandmother, you said, right, that influenced you with some yeah. of the wild foods and cooking. That resonates with me so much because my mom's mother, I can remember in when I was young, my grandmother was very poor. You know, she didn't have a lot of money. She lived on social security. Her husband right. died when I was a baby. But my grandmother lived next door to us. And she would cook up the lake trout that I caught as a young child. And she would tell me about cooking like rabbits. Like if, if I shot a snowshoe hare, she would make rabbit patties. And she would awesome. can venison, you know. And, and so, you know, it was like her influence there. She's still, you know, she passed away many years ago, but she's still one of my favorite people ever. And like I just right. remember that encouragement and just that connection to the food and the hunting, like I think is deep. And I love that it's matrilineal, you know, that it comes from your gram. Cause I, you know, I, I had a similar path. That's really cool stuff. And so you just, yeah, you figured it out. You got the dog. Um, what is it? And, and you've, interestingly, you've stuck with Brittany's right all these years. Yeah. Yeah. What is it yeah. you like about Brittany's? There is, a bit of folklore to the Brittany that I really love. And I think that it's apropos and goes hand in hand with why we're American hunters as opposed to English estate hunters. You know, the, the lore is that the French would kennel the Englishman's dogs on the estates in, in Brittany. And when the Englishmen went back to England, they would take these dogs and breed them. And they didn't want the English to know this. So they basically stole bloodlines from very expensive high-end dogs and mixed them into herding dogs and any, basically any dog would do if it had good traits, you know, and that's how we end up with the French Brittany today. And I feel like that's totally appropriate for an American hunter because we are, we don't hunt estates. I mean, some of us are club members and, and that's about as close as it gets. But, you know, we, we believe the game is all of ours. And, you know, so these Frenchmen would take their not-so-gun-dog-looking dogs and, you know, take nobility's game off of their property while they were away. And I liked that. I liked that. It was thumbing, thumbing, and thumbing uh, your nose at what ought to be or what should be or what someone prescribed to you is the right way. And yeah. that's maybe the, the essence of my story in becoming a hunter. No one told me something had to be one way. And the Brittany totally fits that bill. They're good dogs. You can, you can pack a bunch in a small vehicle, always have a fresh dog, big hearted, not always smart. Some of them uh, get themselves in trouble, but uh, I've had a few that were just incredible, unique, highly intelligent, very little training. If 
but they are energetic. They need to run. They need they need some distance just about every day, you know. Uh, but I love them. They're good retrievers. They point very well. They, you know, I don't train my dogs the same way someone in NAVDA or field trials would train their dog. Basically, I use my dog for every aspect of bird hunting, you know, from the from tracking a scent to pointing to flushing on command to retrieving. Okay, so why should I go kick brush in front of a pointing dog? I don't get a shot, right? So I let the dog do everything. Yeah, that's cool. And, you know, I was reading recently something I didn't know. One slight difference between, and you can correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but like one slight difference between Britneys and others like Spaniels, like Cocker Spaniels or English Spaniels. The Britneys are like considered pointer dogs and the other Spaniels are considered flushing dogs. Right. I, I didn't actually, right. I didn't actually know that, but like for people yeah. that don't know a lot about bird hunting, because it's kind of an entry level kind of conversation, what exactly is the difference between a flushing dog and a, and a pointing dog? Well, ideally all of these dogs, particularly in the grouse woods, because we do work in quite pretty tight quarters, you know, I mean, you're talking shot availability is within 25 to 30 yards, typically, if it's out beyond that, uh, you probably either don't see the bird, or you probably won't get a shot pattern on it, so they're all pretty close working dogs in terms of bird dogs, period. The difference really would be, if my dog gets a scent, and gets within a certain distance of that bird, it's going to stop completely, and it's going to lift one leg, ideally. You know, you you want the picture-perfect point, and it's going to walk me into where that bird is. Now, the difference for a flushing dog is they'll do what I call mowing the lawn, and they will get more excited as a scent improves. So they're getting closer to a bird. Maybe their tail is going faster as it wags, and their job is not to stop, they're going to plow right through that bird. So you're, you have to pay attention to the body language of that flushing dog and understand, oh yes, that dog is getting excited, we're getting closer to a bird, let me be ready to shoot. Now if I have a, you know, a picture perfect point on a bird, and the bird decides to stay put, you and I can sit there and do a podcast while the dog is on point. And when we're done with our podcast, I can release the dog. He'll flush the bird for me. You know, so that is the difference. The, if one will just continue pushing through and flush the bird without a pause. The other will pause and wait for you to either position yourself or, or uh, get a little closer, whatever the case may be. But that dog is going to indicate by maybe dropping is like a setter will drop its shoulders, lift its tail high. Uh, Britneys will typically lift one paw and point, dropping their shoulders. English pointers will have their tail straight out with a lifted leg, you know, but they're all going to pause and they're going to give you an opportunity to get in a good shooting position. If you're a, if you're a break action gun shooter, 
and you walk with your action open, gives you the opportunity to close the action on the gun and be ready for a shot. I like it because the more the more heads up I get for a bird, the better chance I have of shooting it. Now, someone who with a flushing dog, they may be very good instinctive shooters and they may kill a lot of birds. I'm not that guy. I've never been a great instinctive shooter. I, I can shoot, but I, you know, I'm not a snapshot. And I don't like combat hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that I consider not really fun. I mean, I, I don't want to walk through the woods gripping my gun like any second something can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to leisurely walk through the woods, let the dog do the work. And when the dog gives me an indicator, then I can get myself in order. Uh, but, but to walk through the woods waiting for any seconds to be the opportunity to me is more stress. I, and that's not why I bird hunt. Mm-hmm. It's not to have more stress in my life. You know? I, I get it. I get it. That, thanks for that explanation. That's a really good explanation. And when you're talking about reading the dog's body language and seeing them get excited and, uh, you know, I've heard the term birdie, right? Like I hear my friends right. dogs talking yep. about when dogs the dogs get birdie. birdie. Yep. And, yep. Uh, you know, and I saw that a little bit um, with some friends here recently earlier this fall when we had one of their dogs out. So it was pretty cool to see and be around. Um, I don't right. have a bird dog. I've always had, I've always had uh, house pet dogs, you know, rescue dogs, month, um, lab mixes right. and stuff like that. I've been around dogs my whole life, but I, I just – the older I get and, and the more I learn about upland hunting, that interest in getting a bird dog really just has intensified for me. So someday it'll work out. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I'll tell you this, just before we move on about the bird dogs. Mm-hmm. Now, one beautiful thing about the Brittany is they're as good in the field as they are in the home. And I, you know, I've got five dogs and every one of those dogs have a spot on one of the couches in the den. They are not kennel dogs. They do not get locked up outside at night. They are in the house. They are part of the family. And we expect them to act that way too, you know? So I think more stress is caused by mischievous young pups in the house than it is out in the field, you know? Uh, and, and, And people should understand that, you know, there's no reason that your musterlander or your wire hair that you have in your apartment in New York City, there is no reason why you shouldn't try fielding that dog. As long as that dog is obedient and will come to your heel when you call, good, take that dog out. Mm-hmm. I am tired of the excuses, not today, maybe another time. The dog's not trained well enough. Those are bad excuses. Those are the excuses that lead to fat Labradors on couches. People need to say, this is my hunting partner, and and that's good. It doesn't mean they have to be diehard. Mm-hmm. Just give that dog the opportunity to be in the field with you. That is well said. That is great advice. You know, I was over in Maine deer hunting a couple weeks ago, and my friend yeah. Jack um, happened – I mean – what is funny about this is we're in remote Western Maine in this little town and it just so happened he lives down in um, the Hudson Valley and it just so happened that we were both up there at the same time, but I was deer hunting and he was 
bird hunting. He was grouse hunting with his Musterlander uh, dog, who's probably maybe a year and a half old. And uh, he was so excited, and this dog was so beautiful. And um, they they got a grouse, and like just the excitement in the voice. We hung out and had a couple beers um, that one evening. And um, hearing him tell the story about why he was there, he made that trip for the dog, you know, because he wanted to give that dog a chance to be the dog that it is. You hunt right. birds. And uh, right. I, just, I had so right. much fun hanging around with him and, and his dog that night. It was great. It was a beautiful dog. Well, well, you bring up a great point. You bring up a really great point. So how does a guy from the Catskills hop in a truck one day, or actually it was a Honda Accord one day, and end up in North Dakota to go hunt sharp-tailed grouse. Like, what? Why would you? Why would you do such a thing? That sounds crazy. Uh, but what you said was very interesting. It was about a trip for the dog. It wasn't about my dream to go hunt North Dakota. It was, hey, this is what this dog does. Let's add some variety to its life. And. That was the beginning. It was a trip to North Dakota. I mean, in a Honda Accord. So you don't have to have the pickup truck. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have the kennel box rig. Um, you know, there's one guy that I see pretty often in the Catskills, and I think that you probably know him via Instagram. Uh, Gus in Manhattan mm-hmm. uh, is his Instagram handle. And, and that guy comes up in, I think it's, a four-door Honda and his and his uh, wire hair, and he does pretty well. He's still working on getting a grouse, but they're really, other than severe weather, don't say, oh, it has to be like this. Hop in your Honda, hop in your Subaru, take your dog, and start hunting. And, and you'll be surprised at, at what you're going to be able to accomplish without being the quote-unquote pro bird dogger, you know? Yeah, it's great advice. Uh, We're going to talk about your western bird hunting. That's a great segue to that. And I'll just add, even though I don't have a bird dog, I hunt out of a Honda CRV, and I love it because I deer hunt out of that. And uh, I joke with my wife that, like, nobody – Nobody even suspects I'm out deer hunting, really, you know, so I can go to right. all the spots and like, no, you don't have the big pickup truck with all the decals. Like everything is good. Right. Nobody's bothering. Yeah. Me, you know? yeah. I'm, I'm out there driving those logging roads on, uh, in Western Maine with that little Honda and life was good. It had good clearance, but you know, the pickups were driving by like it was I 87 and, but I made it in sure. and out every day. Um, so enough of that. Let's talk Western bird hunting. So you made the, yeah you made the comment about yeah doing it for the dog and that trip to north dakota and you're out coming home from montana now and you you know you've you have so much experience with being out there we had a conversation earlier this week you were talking about sharp tails you were talking about mountain grouse what do you love about montana in the in the west in general and what what have you been up to out there this fall well, you know, field hunts are field hunts, but, uh, and, you know, you're talking pheasants and you're talking, uh, sharp tailed grouse and you're talking about these, these birds that are, uh, gregarious. They like to be near, uh, agriculture and that's great. But the one thing that I really, really love about Montana is what they call mountain grouse, which is actually a few species of grouse. 
and literally zero people out there hunt rough grouse with dogs. They don't do it. So these birds are very, very, they're, I'm not going to say easier to get, but they are more cooperative. Uh, they will hold for a dog much longer than an eastern grouse that's been hunted. Uh, there is a subspecies uh, difference between the eastern roughed grouse and the, you know, Rocky Mountain grouse. Uh, there's, a, you know, slight differences. The body size isn't quite as big. But in that limit of mountain grouse, you know, you've also got the blue grouse and you've got a subspecies uh some people call it the sooty grouse or the dusky grouse, and they're a much bigger bird. And then you've also got something we can't hunt in the east at all is spruce grouse. Mm-hmm. And so in Montana, you have an aggregate limit of three birds between those species. And again, people do not run bird dogs for mountain grouse out there. There's one outfitter that I know that does and he's uh, it's Lenahan Outfitting. He's way, way northwest. He's on the Yak River. Uh, if anyone's familiar with um, the TV series Mountain Men, uh, Tom Moore was the old cowboy that lived up on the Yak River. And, and those guys actually run bird dogs for mountain grouse. But if you go to the rest of the state, you go to the Rocky Mountain Front, or you go to the Beartooth uh, Basin, or you maybe you go up to the Judith or the Moccasin Mountains, uh, those people don't bother hunting for mountain grouse, mm-hmm. uh, especially not with bird dogs. Mm-hmm. You know? So I love that. I'm alone out there, and that's great. Uh, you know, I, I'm the only one out there doing it right now. Uh, or I was the only one out there doing it this past trip. Maybe other people do it, but I've yet to find someone. I love that. Yeah, like I, I love that, what you, you said. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing. You've got an opportunity to do something out there. Um, you're the only one doing it. Um, that's great stuff. And so how are the, the bird numbers out there? What are the differences between, like, eastern bird hunting and western bird hunting and I'd love to hear what you've come to appreciate over the years, the similarities and differences, and just like how you approach them, maybe similarly or differently. So in the East, you know, you can bounce around from one property to another. and You can usually tell, oh, yeah, there's a car there. Oh, yeah, they're, they're bird hunters, whether they've got a kennel box in the back or maybe a a project upland sticker on their vehicle or something. So you can generally tell, yeah, these birds are being hunted. And as silly as we might think a grouse is, because we see them on the side of the road and they look clueless, they're actually kind of hard to hunt. They're, 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 they're pretty wise that something is up. And out west, where you have these grouse that generally are undisturbed, they don't have as many of their um, perceptions as sharp as the eastern grouse do. Now, that's not saying that a young of the year on the east coast is a tough bird to get. Usually the young birds of the year 
are pretty readily gotten. But the difference I would say is when we pound a cover in New York, let's say, in town of uh, Roxbury or somewhere, that's hard hunting. That is actually harder hunting than what I have in Montana. The walking is more difficult. It's, it's actually more arduous to crawl through honeysuckle and, you know, the different covers that we have to get to these birds than it is to walk a logging road that's closed to vehicular traffic. You know, mm-hmm. that's the difference. I, I, and I'm sure in Maine you see those roads as well. Yeah, I get it. Um, by the way, you know, speaking of Maine, I saw a lot of grouse in Maine. Not rubbing it in. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's go up there sometime <laughs> with the forest Sounds good. and the habitat. Uh, it was amazing. I was getting, I yeah. was deer hunting, but I was flushing birds. They were really nice flushes, too. I bird hunt here in the Adirondacks in October. I'm amazed at how how crafty those things are. Like, most of the birds I'm not even seeing, Bill. You know, they're flushing. Right. And I hear them, right. but it's, it's through the aspen leaves and beech leaves. And they're like 50, sure. 60 yards away from me, and they're flushing before I even see them. And, it, you know, yeah. and occasionally I'll get a shot. Yeah. But like, it, was, it was really cool over in Maine with some of the young forest conditions where they would actually flush, and they were flushing in ways that I'm like, well, you know, if I had my shotgun, even a guy like me might have a chance at that bird. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm a big fan of pulling the trigger – Granted, I say, if you have a dog, don't feel shy to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because even if you wound a bird, your dog is going to get that bird. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're by yourself, no dog, uh, you're in, you know, dry leaves, and you happen to shoot a woodcock and didn't quite mark it properly, your chances of finding that bird are slim to none. You know, recovery of the bird, the final chapter of the hunt and i never want someone to think oh i'm just going to keep pulling the trigger because we've got a bag limit of four or whatever it might be and well i don't know if i hit that bird or not but i didn't find it so let me keep hunting i have had my Brittany break from command which drives me nuts but i've learned from it uh post shot and comes back to me with a live grouse in its mouth, and that thing has one pellet in it, and really? it's in its leg. Yeah, and so, or maybe it has a broken wing tip. And that bird is completely alive, and it'll, it'll survive, but it may not survive the night, and it may not survive the hawks and the owls, and it may not survive the other predators. Uh, grouse have a tough run. You know, let's not forget, they're ground nesters. So, you know, turkeys destroy their nests. Different vermin, like you'll get weasels destroying nests. You'll get possums destroying nests. Skunks will consume a nest. You know, they got a lot going against them. So I think that if you know, you you know, you see that bird, it's an easy left-to-right shot, no dog, go for it. You know, you know, you see one pop up in a hole in the in the aspens. No dog, a lot of leaf cover. I don't know. I don't know if I would pull the trigger. You know, in a, in a moral sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it it is. That's a huge consideration, and I think it's uh, something I think about a lot. 
you know, so it, it is like an ethical question. And I think for people that don't have dogs, I think people think about that stuff a lot. And I, I appreciate you bringing that ethical perspective up. So what do you have going on? You're, you're heading back to New York here. Talk yeah, I'm waiting about... for this damn deer season to end yeah. so I can get back in the woods with the dogs. So our grouse season, yeah. like for people outside of New York, our grouse season runs through February 20th. It is the longest, yeah, it is the longest bird season of any other state in the country. Well, what's it like for you? I'm sorry I cut you off, so keep talking. No, no. Like, what's it like for you, like your perspective on early season grouse hunting versus late season grouse hunting? Like when, it, when, when we're into January and February and it's still open for grouse, um, and most people yeah. might be just thinking of other things. They're fishing, they're ice fishing, they're doing whatever. Or dreaming of summer, yeah. Dreaming I mean, of summer. Uh, I dream of leap years with uh, with uh, February that's got one more day of grouse hunting. What's that's, February that's, grouse hunting like? Oh, it's I like it the best. If we don't have heavy snow cover, these birds become concentrated. They become somewhat gregarious. So when you get into them, um, it's not a single bird. It's usually multiple birds. And you can discount a lot of the, the properties in between those covers. You know, so you can say, well, I know where there is a bunch of rose hips and a bunch of tight hawthorns or, or tight honeysuckles, whatever it might be. So why are you bothering paying attention to an open field? Open fields, grouse don't want to be there. They want to be in the denser covers or the very edges of those covers. So you can eliminate a lot of stuff that you would hunt in October uh, in February, right? And actually, uh, I, if I get a moment, I will pass it along to you. I do have a, uh, I do have a GoPro video of a pretty typical late season hunt that I filmed a few years back. Uh, and it exactly shows that, you know, uh, me moving as quick as I can through open snow covered fields. And then once I got to where those deeper covers are, that's when I started concentrating. And, you know, do you move a lot of birds? Yeah, you could move quite a few birds. Um, now I have a private lease in, in Albany County that I keep. And by the way, if, if, if these people in New York, throughout New York, don't understand Albany County, uh, there is some amazing property up there. There is truly some beautiful, beautiful public land up there. Um, and it's within a spit of the capital, you know. So it, it's worth hunting. And that property, it was managed for deer, you know. And coincidentally, it created a lot of habitat for grouse. So I was very lucky to get this lease. And one thing that I will tell people um, about grouse hunting, don't kill your limit of birds on any property. I don't care if you saw 20 that day. Do not do it. Don't kill a limit of birds in one location. It is a bad idea. You will be tempted to go back there. You know, give it a few weeks. Grouse typically have a range of about four to six acres, depending on 
what the property is. So if you want that property to keep producing birds for you in years to come, please don't shoot a limit of birds on one given property, especially if it's two, three, four hundred acres. That's just not enough, you know. Thanks for sharing that, Bill. Uh, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was what you said about February and, and cover and grouse avoiding the open areas. I was reading a Sand County Almanac last night. You know how Leopold runs through the um, the months, right, in that book? Right. And so in December, he was talking about grouse and the grouse wanting to be out of the wind in that time of year, you know? So wherever sure. they would be, they would be in cover. They would be under the, the oak top. You know, they would be in some, some just thicker cover. And it was just, it just right. reminded me of what you were saying. I just, because I just read it last night. It was great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Leopold, although we know Leopold and Waylon and all these guys for their big game hunting, I mean, they were all, they, they were in love with every aspect of the woods, including the smaller game, you know, uh, the rabbit or the hare and the, and the you know, the, the grouse. These were real outdoors people. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't just, oh, well, that's, that guy developed the 35 cartridge or whatever it was well that's great and they were big game hunters but they they loved it all you know and that's 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 what made them great conservationists they didn't just see one aspect you know they saw the they saw that you know good property management uh healthy forests healthy transitional properties you know these, these guys knew what they were looking at well before this modern age of hunting came around What's amazing about that, I'll just add to that, is uh, so my favorite yeah. my favorite Leopold essay is Conservation in Whole or Part, and it was a rebuttal. It took place in the 1930s when the conversations about deer populations were happening. And so, you know, there was this trend of people wanting to just manage for the maximum number of deer for hunters, for a recreational standpoint. And Leopold kind of rebutted that and said, hey, you know, there's conservationists who look at one particular aspect and think of it as in terms of like utility and a resource inventory, but there's also conservation in terms of land health and a functioning system. And so whether it's just one part or whether it's looking at kind of like the health of that and how it all functions and how it all comes together, some of it contributes economic value, some of it doesn't. But holistically, right. it, all, it all adds value, you know, whether it's commercial species right. or not. He was way ahead of his time for the oh, yeah. 1930s for even oh, yeah. like that. So oh, a yeah. little bit of a tangent anyway. But um, speaking of conservation and habitat and stuff, you, you were involved with, um, and you probably still are, with Rough Grouse Society's, um, is it the Mid-Hudson chapter, Catskill Church? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I um so I had started guiding for myself at that point, and I kind of looked around and I said, well, I see a lot of sportsmen's associations putting pheasants down, which, you know, they're not a native bird. They, they usually don't hold over. They don't usually breed in our state. And uh, so I gave, uh, I gave uh, at the time, Coropolis, Pennsylvania, a call, and I said, hey, can we start a chapter here? And from that, back when Gander was still in Kingston, New York, started having some meetings, did a few preliminary uh, 
statistical analysis to figure out, do we have enough people? Is there enough interest? And it turned out there was, and I came across some, you know, some really great people by doing that, including the current president of that chapter, Rick Afuso, who's oddly enough also has Bernie. But that was kind of the beginning for the Mid-Hudson chapter. And I liked the message. I really liked the message because we're talking about stratification of forest. And I don't know how many people listening have driven across some of the New York City reservoirs. And you look at these pine tree stands that are basically planted in the same manner you would a cornfield. Mm-hmm. And literally, there is nothing growing on the ground underneath other than some mushrooms and an occasional, you know, you know, Barbary, which is not native either. And those are pretty barren areas. Yeah, I, you know, and I think it's um, for people that aren't familiar with forest conservation and forest health, it might not be readily apparent that those that single age class of forest as it matures it creates issues even though it's a forested landscape without the mosaics of what you call stratification or vertical age classes like tall trees younger trees the vertical structure in what we call the canopy the tops of the trees you know having some vertical diversity and and canopy differences in areas where there's not only vertically diverse but different age classes of forest so if you look at grouse from a habitat standpoint uh, they really thrive in mosaics they really thrive where you have age classes that are 10 to 15 year old um, saplings little trees that have yeah. been re- that yeah. have naturally rejuvenated um, and then like sure. a 20, 25 to 40 year old class of aspen and and then some older forests surrounding all of that you know so like the right. and and the thing that you had touched on like with your lease that that's important too is like you said that it was managed for deer and it was good for grouse and i think that healthy forests and good forest conservation is really good for grouse and woodcock, but it benefits so much more. So. Everything. It yeah. does. And, yeah. and even if you're a non-hunter, if you look at, well, why are we losing our grouse numbers? And we're looking at things, you know, and I'm thinking New York. Uh, you know, why are, why, are the, why are the deer eating grass on the side of the road? They could be in the woods. Well, guess what? That's where their food happens to be because we've created openings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, you know, it's not a perfect ecological indicator. However, grouse are pretty good ecological indicators. Uh, if you've got decent grouse numbers, something right is happening. You know, there is something correct in those woods that's allowing that to happen. And as you transit through these areas where these grouse are, all of a sudden you start seeing the most amazing ground scrapes and the most amazing tree rubs. And you start noticing, geez, you know, there's a lot of different animals using this habitat. So woodcock are different because they are migratory and they do need very specific features on properties to do well. Grouse also need specific features, but those features also go hand in hand with not just the game species, but the predatory ones as well. I mean, you know, the there are not wolves in any part of Montana that does not have elk. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 
that is just how it works. So that's a really interesting point, Bill, what you're saying about wolves in the West and pairing habitat. We are talking about grouse habitat and what's good for grouse is what's good for so many more species as well, that they're an indicator species. That's a bellwether, like RGS likes to say. Yeah. And so you see warblers, you see grouse, you see deer, you know, you see a whole lot of, um, of wildlife and healthy functioning forests. Absolutely. What's interesting is I've learned, you know, coming from the east and being involved with national conservation groups and hunting in the west um, in places like Wyoming and Colorado, Nebraska, you know, there's some similarities and commonalities when it comes to what it takes to keep animals on the ground in the sense of what you just said in terms of habitat. What's interesting is that there are regional differences in factors that influence that habitat and degradation and so forth. Like what I've seen in the West is just because of the nature of landscapes and the wildlife and elk and so forth, things like development and infrastructure and roads, you know, they they play a part in the East too, but they, they really impact those Western species. But like when you get into Eastern forests, there are forests issues that you know, like you were talking about with lack of stratification and base of species and so uh, forest management in in ecosystems that are forested is really important active forest management can contribute positively and be right. a big solution and it right. also creates you know sustainable economies it creates jobs it creates habitat it's just a win-win situation yeah i mean look if you chase birds all season you know, you start in September in the Adirondack, and you end in the Catskills at the end of February. How much fuel did you buy in the state? Mm-hmm. How many how many sets of tires have you gone through? How much money have you put into the economy? That's great. And COVID has changed things, you know. But hunters put in an enormous amount of money in the economy. And let's not forget that we've got that little thing called the Pittman-Robinson Act. And often when I hunt public land, there's a lot of people that use that land too that do not contribute to any of these conservation funds outside of maybe state tax um, that is funneled into the DEC at some point somehow. But we really, you know, we're the people that put the money where our mouth is. And, you know, do I ever want to see a moose season in New York? Of course I do. Do I think we should have one? Not right now. Not until we figure things out. Not until their population gets better. Not until we figure out why some are dying off. Uh, And we know why some are dying off. But, you know, every time I drive by Indian Lake and I see a moose kneeling in the road licking road salt, I kind of scratch my head, but that that's that's the challenge that we have now. You know, if we want to keep these traditions alive, we want to keep running our bird dogs or or, or sitting around the fire at deer camp or any of that. You know, if we continue to fragment the habitat, and that was one thing we didn't talk about was habitat fragmentation. The tolerance for a grouse to stay in an area that's been fragmented is very low. Uh, you'll hear the story of a grouse flying into a picture window. Well, why? Uh, usually it's males that see a reflection of another bird and they go to fight. 
in the Adirondacks that'll happen. We don't have that in downstate New York because we've fragmented the habitat so badly at this point that there are no grouse. Let me add to that, too, that it, this may be something that sounds like ironic or it just sounds like it's a paradox, but active forest management, if you have healthy uh, stewardship, if you have people managing their forest well, they're sustainable, they're economically viable, that's a tool for preventing fragmentation. <laughs> and so, you know, you could have, you can cut trees and maintain forested landscapes, and that's not the same as fragmentation. It's actually a tool to prevent it. Sure. And, no, and that has so, nothing to do with someone planting a bunch of large-scale homes in the Catskills because people want to escape the city. And that's the bigger problem right now. I, I always scratch my head when I, when I see a new home being built and a large-scale home. I'm like, well, geez, why didn't they just buy that property that's already got a home on it that for the same price they're spending? They could have tore that house down and built whatever they wanted on a footprint that already exists without destroying more habitat, you know? Yeah, I just had a conversation with Dr. Heidi Kretzer, who is with Wildlife Conservation Society. She's up here in the Adirondacks, yep. and Michaela Glennon, who she's a doctor at Paul Smith's. And they're saying the same thing. Like they look at both the social science aspect and the ecological impacts of development here in the Adirondacks because it's a mosaic of public, public and private land. And they're saying the same thing. It's like that fragmentation and development, even though it's like rural disbursement, sometimes right. like that, that can be just, uh, that, that can really over time, time it adds up. And, and yeah. that's, it's really a yeah. factor. Yeah. Well, as much as hunting pressure does, too. I mean, mm -hmm. grouse are pretty good at staying where they want to be. But if that area becomes overhunted, those grouse will vacate. They will disperse. They, they're out of there. And if someone's hunting that property day in and day out, those birds become wise to it. And they, you know, they won't move far, but far enough where they're no longer in that zone. Mm -hmm. um, and that creates problems of its own um, in terms of, you know, from the hunter's standpoint, oh, well, where did the grouse go? Well, they went over there about a mile, you know, yep. and it's usually never a mile, but, you know, they went over there, and now it's on private land, and you're never going to touch them. And they will get comfortable with that private land, Forget it. There's your hunting opportunity for those birds is gone. So respecting respecting that hunter that might be on the property the day before you, you know, you never know who was on that property yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know that Joe Schmo went in there and shot three birds. You have no idea. Um, that's one of the downsides of public land. Uh, but that's why I tell people. You know, you go into a piece of property, don't ever, ever shoot your limit of birth on one property. It's just bad practice. So, so over harvest for a, for a vulnerable species like grouse is, is something that I like people to understand. Now, I don't know. Do you know a gentleman by the name of David Kurtz? I, I do. I met David. And okay. the, um, we did a grouse film tour in Syracuse 
Yeah. Before COVID hit in January and invited RGS chapter members, this was a backcountry hunters and anglers. It was like the yeah. film tour with Project Upland and Yukonuba. And uh, yeah. David, yeah, David came and uh, Kevin. Yeah. And we, and we all met AJ a number of years ago. So we've yep. known AJ for, for a while. And uh, so Dave is a great example of a consummate grouse hunter. Dave will not hunt the same cover at all twice in a season, ever. Will not even step foot on a property. Usually, he doesn't even hunt the same properties the next season. There is not a single outing that he will go back to a cover in a season. And that, to me, hey, that's a lot of miles on the truck. But that being said, that's the right way to do it, mm -hmm. you know. It also gives you a lot more property in the GPS to visit in years to come, you know. You know, deer camps are not like that. You know, we all go back to the same deer camp year after year, and, you know, it's the same two guys or, or gals, whoever, that get the big buck and everyone else just has a good time and, and hunts, but they're not as successful, right? Mm -hmm. so but we're going back to the same properties. I, I'm finding with big woods hunting up here, what you're saying about moving around and because deer numbers are so low up in the Adirondacks, I've become more conscientious about that too. It's just like, well, I have 3 million acres to hunt. And so if I shoot a deer, a, a nice buck in one area one year, I might go entirely, you know, just hunt a different area or several, but having four, five, six places to go, not only right. does it seem, I, I don't know, it also seems interesting to me too, because it just, for somebody, if, if you're kind of like a personality that wants to see over the next ridge, not only is it good for the, for the population of wildlife there, giving it a break, but it's also kind of interesting, keeps you motivated and Yeah, you know, and there are... You know, there's grouse hunters I know that they just don't hunt certain types of woods, which I understand. They don't enjoy it. It's not what they consider prime cover. I fall into the same category. There are certain things that I look for that I say, well, I know there's birds in there, but I don't really enjoy hunting that. So I'm going to go find something that's more similar to what I enjoy. And... A lot of times what I find is I'll get a phone call from someone who is, you know, they're getting up there in their years. I had one gentleman this year particularly, uh, he was in his 70s, and, you know, crawling around in the woods and under, under deadfalls and cross stone walls and all those things, that's taxing enough for a young, healthy person. But you're talking about someone in their 70s. So, you know, that comes into play in my decision-making of, well, where are we going to go so that this person can have a good time and still manage physically to deal with it? And, you know, to boot, the gentleman was shooting a shotgun from the 1860s uh, that was a hammer gun using RST shells. And, uh, you know, this archaic shotgun, I mean, we've, we've moved on to over-unders. Well, some of us have. I have not. I still shoot a side-by-side. -side. And, uh, you know, so the modernization has come into play for, for so many people making it easier. But on the other hand, 
I love that nostalgia of someone in the field doing it the old way, maybe having an old shotgun. You know, to me, there's there's really a romance there, and uh, maybe that's what it was when I when we started the conversation. How did I get here? And it was a painting. There was a romance to that painting. There was there was something nostalgic, something deep and and good about that. And maybe that's the tradition that we need to continue to work on and work with, as opposed to hey, look at this huge elk that I shot uh, with my, God, I, I cringe saying it, six and a half mil creed more, you I, know. I, I think that's a great way. Um, I think that's a great way to, like, bring this whole conversation around in full circle. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, all I can think of, honestly, when I think of how did we get to where we are now, from a country that basically decimated our wildlife in the 1800s, it was guys like you and gals like Krista Whitman and, and all of these people that, yeah, they want to eat something. Yeah, they want to put something on the plate. But I think that there is a romance to it. And it's the romance we have with our environment, with our habitat, with the woods around us. Uh, maybe that's why so many people, younger people I've noticed from the city are embracing this saying, my God, I've never, I, I wasn't from a hunting family and I love it. And I love being out here and I love seeing the sunrise and hearing the woods wake up. You know, if, if, if people have never hunted deer, you know, the sound you're in the tree stand or the ground blind, and the woods wake up in the morning. And what was totally silent all of a sudden becomes as loud as a city. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the experiences that we need to share with people. That's that's why it's good about this, you know. I, I'm not so sure I'm happy with every big buck photo that's out on Instagram or any of that. You know my philosophy. Trophies are shared at the dinner table, not hung up all. Yeah, that comes back. How do I eat responsibly? What's my role? And, and how do I want to carve my footprint, so to speak? So closing thought. Yeah. So where are you now? We've been talking. Been I have talking. now entered the great state of Minnesota. And right. it's another, it's a beautiful day here. It's sunny. Uh, I'll be passing the Jolly Green Giant shortly. Uh, I know, I know this road very well. Um, I've done it. Oh God. I just this year, I must've driven this since, uh, last January. I must've done this drive five or six times now. And, uh, it, it doesn't get old, you know, does yeah. not get old. It's something that I look forward to. I did not go West this year. Next year, I'll probably be back in Wyoming, and I just look yeah. forward to it. I love the opportunities. I'm thankful for it. It never gets old. So, listen, we got to connect, like, when you get home later this absolutely. time. I'd love to come down. Let's hunt together sometime. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for – you have such great perspective. You're doing such great things. If there's folks that are in the Catskill region or Hudson Valley region and you want to hook up with a great – bird guide 
give Bill Swiak a call. So Orvis Sandino. Absolutely. Uh, you know, newcomers are welcome. Uh, if you just want to walk along with me and, uh, and see how it's done, you don't have to hunt. Uh, there's, there's true pleasure in watching the dogs work. And uh, anyone can reach me, either my cell number, 845-532-1100, or you can shoot me an email, uh, at gmail, or you can find me on Instagram. And you can take a look at some of uh, some of this year's happy clients. Uh, there's a lot of mixed things on that on that Instagram page, but uh, you know this this is something that was not given to me. I learned it on my own, and it's it's so important to me to eliminate the duration that I went through for these people that are new to this. Uh, it shouldn't take you a decade to kill your first grouse. You know? mm-hmm. I, I want to share that. Okay. Sure. S- safe travels, Bill. We'll catch up with you on this side. And Thank um, you, sir. I'll see you in the next time zone. Okay. And, uh, and I wish you the best of luck for the rest of the deer season. And uh, if you can move time ahead, can you please make it end already so I can go back in the woods? You got it. It'll be here soon. So uh, I appreciate you joining me. um, Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.